I, I want to welcome you to today's edition of The Bradley Hall Show. And I am your host, The Bradley Hall. As you've guessed it by now, I am the Bradley Hall. I wanted you to know that I am a certified trauma recovery coach and a certified mindfulness instructor and a certified holistic life coach. Now, what this means is that I am a trauma-informed holistic life coach with a focus on awareness, which is the first step to any type of personal growth. Let my 30 years of coaching and my experience overcoming trauma work for you. To work with me, go to my website, thebradleyhall.com. Look for the coaching tab in the upper right-hand corner. You can choose holistic life coaching or trauma recovery coaching. Anyone who ever accomplished anything had a great coach or a great mentor. You should too. You're worth it. Contact me now. Hi, welcome back to today's episode of The Bradley Hall Show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking again with Bobby L. Parrish. Bobby is a therapist and the founder of the International Association of Trauma Recovery Coaches. And today, we're going to talk about the association. We're going to talk about Bobby's story, and we're going to talk about uh, what coaching means and how it can benefit someone in your life. I'm 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 glad you're back. Thank you for joining me Absolutely. again. Um, Absolutely. Obviously, um, you're very easy to talk to. I always enjoy speaking with you. Yes. Um, but yes. so it's it's good to have you back. So today, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about your journey, about your story. Yeah. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to tell your story. Um, and let, let's just start there. Okay. Um. You know, it's interesting because we had exchanged a few messages and you asked, you know, what would you want a trauma survivor who's just starting their journey to know? What would you tell them? And I think it would be a lot of my story. Because if you hear my story, then what I tell people if there's, you know, especially when the students first come into the class, the trauma recovery certification course, um, and they sit down, a lot of them are feeling like, can I do this? Is it okay for me to do this? You know, I've, I've had a lot of a hard time. Can I possibly be a good coach? And so I start off by, you know, telling people, if you think you shouldn't be here, then I want to let you know, if anybody shouldn't be in the position they're in, it's me because I have gone some really, really hard and you know, places that I felt very ashamed um, to get to this point. And so you know, I, I give a little bit of my history and I talk about um, you know, when I was a child, my mom and dad who didn't have any business getting married, let alone having children, um, that to back up just a tiny bit. Um, in my family, in the generations, um, the firstborn child in any family is given to the church, the Catholic church. So it was the expectation on my mother. She was the firstborn in her family. So the firstborn, if they're a female, they go into the convent. If they're a male, they go into the priesthood. And um, so my mother knew from the time she was itty bitty that she was supposed to be a nun. And she went to, you know, did her Catholic school education, 18 years old, went into the convent. Um, and she didn't feel it fit for her. So she left. And the family felt great shame that they had violated this rule. And they could not have any pride in their children because this had not happened for them. And she was very much a lot of shame piled on her. So fast forward a couple of years, she, mail, she marries my dad um, and things start to go awry 
but she feels she can't get a divorce because she's already failed the family by not becoming a nun. And she can't bear the shame of then going forward and getting a divorce. So she stayed in this marriage much longer than she should have. But one of the consequences of that is what happened to me. So my father, um, a perpetual child, just wanted to be loved. That's all he ever wanted was to be loved. And my mother was like, I don't really want to have much to do with you. I especially don't want to have sex with you. So have Bobby, you know, take this child um, because she will stand in my place. So I don't have to have a relationship with you. And in particular, I don't have to have sex with you. And so, you know, for eight years of my life from between the time I was three up until about the time I was 11, um, you know, my father sexually abused me. And the irony is that as a child, I thought that was love. Right. I thought that was love. Um, and when I reached 11 years old, um, you know, we never talked about why it happened, but I suspect he stopped because he felt I might get pregnant and that would be a bad thing. Um, and then he completely did a 180 on me and rejected me and started emotionally and psychologically abusing me. And I can say to people, when my father stopped abusing me, it was the most devastating thing because he, he stopped paying attention. Me. Yeah. Yeah. And I lost, I mean, my mother wasn't paying any attention. I lost everything in that time that I thought was love. I was devastated. So devastated. Um, so, you know, spend some more time growing up, start going through periods of depression starting about age 14. Um, married, you know, married the guy I was supposed to marry according to all my family. And the problem was is that he wasn't a big fan of monogamy. Okay. You know? So that marriage started to fall apart. I was 27 years old and getting divorced, which in my family was horrific. Yeah. Um, and it was really shameful for me. And that's when my depression went <clears throat> And for the next five or six years, I bounced in and out of psychiatric wards, um, bounced in between a doctor who I thought might help to another doctor who I thought might help to another doctor who traumatized me by, you know, telling me things like, you know, this is your fault. You know, you're malingering. You know, if you would just do A, B, C, and D, you'd be fine. And um, lost my job due to my depression. Um, spent some time homeless. And finally found a therapist who taught me what it meant to love myself. And that was the pivot point for me. Because I had never, I'd never experienced love. I didn't know what love was. Well, at that point, my idea of love was what took place between my father and I. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You know, um, and even though it was, you know, the sexual abuse was there, but it came with, "I love you. You're special. You know, you're amazing," um, and it tricked me. You know, I really did think that was love, um, but I started working with Gabrielle. And that was the first time in my life, I think, that I ever experienced what love really was. And she loved me. And she loved me enough to teach me what it looked like. And I learned then, by reciprocating that love to her, I learned how to love myself. And that was literally my pivot point. I went, started working with her, and then I went up to Washington State and did a 10-day stay 
in a hospital specializing in childhood abuse survivors. And they actually cared about what I wanted to learn. They considered me part of my treatment team. They saw value in me. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced that in all the mental health system that I went through. It was always about, this is what you need to do here, fix yourself, do this. I, I never saw a treatment plan. I didn't know what they were writing down. Um, so that's, that was my pivot point, you know? And that's when I you know, got my feet on the ground, went to grad school, um, was treated not so hot in grad school, you know, because I had a mental health disorder. I was told that I didn't have the, I didn't have the possibility to contribute to the field. Um, but I persisted, nevertheless. Um, you know, started working as a therapist, working with people who had been abused as they were children. Um, then completely lost my mind and married again and ended up moving to the Middle East. Wow, I did so, not know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I tell people the first time I married, I didn't know who I was. And the second time I married, I'd forgotten who I was. Okay. Um, the reality is, is I ran away. I ran away. I don't know if I've ever told you this part of my story and I've never talked about it publicly, but um, I wrote a book in that period of time when I was in grad school, just coming out of grad school. And um, it was purchased by one of the big publishing houses. Wow. And um, I wrote the book, you know, we pitched, I had a literary agent, the whole bit. Um, we pitched the, the book, the book was purchased, there was a bidding, um, and I wrote the book. And it was going to hit the market. And I ran away. Because I was so afraid of being in the public eye. I was so ashamed of who I was. That I ran away. I ran away, um, married someone, moved overseas, and um, lost myself in a toxic relationship because that felt safer to me than standing up before the whole world and saying, I have something to say. I have something to say that I think is valuable. couldn't do it. It felt safer to be in a destructive marriage than to own the truth. It's what you knew. Right. Being in destructive right. relationships. Yeah. And familiarity um, is very powerful. It is. It's that uncomfortable comfort zone. Yeah. I know that. I don't like it. I don't really want to be here. But it's much less frightening. It's the beast I know. I know this right. beast. I don't know what's out there. All I have is fear. That's right. Um, so, yeah, dealt with that for a long time. You know, finally got a divorce, had my little boy, went through some more homelessness, some more struggles, um, but finally really found my feet, you know, and started this program. And, um, it has been between that and marrying my wife, you know, having my son, it has been one of the, you know, most amazing experiences in my life. You know, um, I am, I swear I'm one of the luckiest people in the world in terms of what I do for a living. You know, I get to make a difference in people's lives. And then those people, can go out and make a difference in other people's lives. And it's the most amazing ripple. And I get to be right in the middle of it. 
Yeah. Um, that has been so healing for me. It oh, was sure. so scary to stand up again and say, hey, yeah. I, think, I think I have something, you know? And I think there was part of me, Bradley, that thought I would fail. Oh, I'm sure. You know? And I didn't fail. And, no. you know, it came around the next time for enrollments. And I thought, okay, this time, this time it's going to fail. This time right. it's going to fail because people, you know, have gone through the first round and surely all of them now are looking at me going, yeah, she really sucks. Yeah. You yeah. Know? It's that it's inner critic. It's that no one wants to listen to what you have to say. Yeah. Sit down, please, before you just further embarrass yourself. Right. And shame yourself even more than you already are. What if, what if they don't like it? And what if they, it's not, what if it's not good enough? What if it's not intelligent right. enough? What if yes. someone who's better than me comes along and criticizes what I'm doing? Yes. Yeah. Yes. All of it. Um, and I even had a, a few people file complaints with um, the state of Texas saying that I was providing therapy without a license. Okay. That was terrifying. I'm sure. You know? Um, so I had to wade my way through that and I provided a response to them and they said, okay, you're good. You know, but it was the whole, the whole time, you know, Bradley, when you have a dock and a boat, I had one foot in the boat and one foot on the dock. Yep. You know, I think this boat can go places, but if it doesn't, I'm just going to take my foot out and I'll be, I'll be okay. I'll be here on the dock. So well, as soon as you step in one foot in the boat. It wobbles. It does. And exactly. it, the boat isn't as stable as the ground. You're like, whoa. And you pull your foot back to the stable ground. Right. Or the boat drifts out. And it's like, I don't know how far my feet can stretch. <laughs> my legs can stretch from one another. Right. You know? Um, and then there's the risk, well, crap. I'm, I can't get back to the dock. But I can't get fully into the boat either. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so then there's the risk of maybe you're just going to fall in the water which right. is that abyss of even greater shame and failure. That's right. Um, so if there's anyone, if there's anyone out watching this or listening to this who thinks I can't do a good thing, you can do a good thing. You can overcome, you can heal so much if you have someone walking with you on the journey who truly cares about you and knows trauma. Yeah. Those are the two pieces that they need to know. They need to know trauma and they need to be invested in creating a relationship with you. Yeah. And, um, you know, I tell people, you have those two things, you're good. Yeah. You know, um, it took me 20 years to get back on my feet. Um, and my, the greatest hope Bradley, that I have with this program that I do is that I can cut that time down for some people. Right. They don't have to go through 20 years of bouncing in and out of the psychiatric ward, you know, being declared disabled, being homeless, um, that I can help them get from point A to point B in a shorter amount of time and with much, much, much greater effectiveness. Yeah, but let's let's hit on this for a second. Okay. I, I, because my my listeners and my followers, many of, most of them know my story, yeah. and or or at least um, at least part of my story. My journey started about fifteen years ago, yeah. and I find that my I won't go into great detail. I can go into that some other time, but yeah. Um. Michelle and I, our marriage had fallen apart. I, my life was just out of control. It was just a wreck. I, I was trying to hold everything together, and, and you know, with duct tape, and it, that only lasts so long. And it was unraveling right in front of me. And I, I, I found a good therapist, and she was someone I, I Will and I talked about this um, the other day. The, I would, I would, eat, I would eat a therapist alive if, you know. I wasn't there to sit down and, and hold hands and play games. I was there. I was there to fix a problem. If we were going to fix the problem, if you didn't know how to fix it, then then we were wasting our time. Thank and I, I found a therapist who, who challenged me. She was amazing. Good. And that that set me on my way. 
but our time was limited. And since then, it's been nothing but me by myself, reading, watching videos and writing things down and trial and error and trying this and trying that. Yep. And, and it's been an amazing journey and that's still part of it. Even if you have a coach, it's still part of it. It is. But I also feel the same way that you do, that if I had had a coach during counseling or after counseling, right. That this process would have been accelerated. Who knows where I would be at right now? Yeah. Uh, Because I spent so much time trying to live a normal life, trying to modify my behavior, trying to understand why I was behaving the way I was. Right. Just trying to put everything, you you know, you only have a limited time uh, of of energy. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Time and energy. So the the thing that I want, you know, our listeners to understand is that anyone who ever did anything worthwhile and remarkable in history had a coach and or a mentor. Yes. LeBron James has a coach. Michael Jordan had a coach, right? Olympic athlete have a coach. Exactly. Anyone who is the CEO of a corporation make millions of dollars had a mentor. They had Mm -hmm. a business coach. They had someone who was teaching them the ropes. They just did. Exactly. I think we have this fallacy that you just, you grow up and you go to college and you learn so much in college and now you're ready to go out and you either Mm -hmm. do or you don't. And that's, that's not the case. It's not the case at all. No. And so, and that's where we come into play. So let, your organization is the International Association of Trauma, of Trauma Recovery, Recovery Coaches. Yep. And you founded this organization as a therapist. Yep. Because there seemed to be a lack of trauma-informed care in the therapy world. Is that correct? Yeah. No, Go actually, ahead. no. Okay. I founded it because I found coaching Okay. to be for me as a therapist. I found coaching to be a way that was much more effective with my clients because it doesn't have the same rigid boundaries in terms of fine establishing that relationship. Okay. You know, um, I tell my clients that I love them. As a therapist, that's like, mm, yeah, I don't know if you yeah. doing that. Um, you know, and I don't, it's not like they become my best friend and I have them over for dinner. But I want them to know that they are loved. And it doesn't matter what they bring into session to talk about with me. I will still love them. And it's that, that's the magic to me. That's what I found is within that capability is where the magic lies. Because I cannot learn how to love myself until I see it in a relationship. You know, most of us have sustained this trauma within the context of a relationship, right? It's called interpersonal trauma. So I either was traumatized when I was a child, mom, dad, sibling, grandfather, you know, coach, you know, and then, you know, maybe I, I did, grew up, bad relationships, again, then traumatized within the concept of a relationship. We can't gut through that healing on our own. We cannot, we have to sustain some of our healing within the context of a healthy relationship. You know, it'd be like someone got into, you know, a car accident and they're traumatized by it. And they come to me and they say, Bobby, I don't know what happened. I can't remember anything. I'm terrified to get back in a car. Okay, well, let's just sit and talk about that. Okay, let me walk you through the process. Okay, so you're going to get your car keys and you're going to go out to the car and you start the car up and they're sitting across from me. We're having this conversation about how to safely drive a car while we're sitting and talking to each other. Doesn't work that way. You got to get back into the car in order to, you know, soothe that trauma. So I can't sit and talk about how do you have a healthy relationship and how to love yourself without letting you experience that in the context of a relationship. And, you know, I stand in opposition to many therapists, psychologists, and say, this needs to happen with trauma survivors. It has to, in order for them to experience healing. So yeah, I walked away from being a therapist 
and swapped over to the coaching because I thought that's where most of the power lies. You know, yeah, I need to know psych. I need to know how the neurobiology works. And, you know, I need to teach my clients about their enlarged amygdala, you know, and we need to address all these things. But unless it is in with the con within the context of a healthy, compassionate relationship, all of this becomes noise. Right. You know? Um, it's knowledge versus application. Yes. You've got to have both. You know? Yeah. It's like I tell people affirmations are not really helpful for trauma survivors because they're just words. Yeah. And we were steeped in years and years and years of someone saying one thing to us, but then you know, behaving in an entirely different way. My clients need to not only say the affirmations to themselves, you know, just say to themselves, I'm loving and I'm deserving of being loved. But if I'm not treating myself that same way, if I'm saying I'm deserving of being loved, but then I go out to a bar every weekend and hook up with a stranger, that's not loving behavior. Right. I have to love myself in my actions as well as in my words. Um, and that's, it's part of the healing journey. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's, um, you, you know, um, the other, the third part of that is, is the awareness of what's going on inside our head that causes us to do those things like go to yep. a bar and, and yep. to a stranger or the self-harm the the habitual things that right. are us and uh, i know you know um that i was unaware of we we, we get the it, it, the the frontal cortex we get so caught up in what's out in front of us right and, and all of our attention is directed out in front of us that we're not paying attention to what's going on inside yep. our brains. And I was amazed. I have a story. Uh, when all this began to happen, um, back in 2004-ish, yeah. um, 2005-ish, I, um, I was just starting to become aware. And I had no awareness, none whatsoever, which is ironic because I had been a, a student of religion since I was probably 12, including okay. uh, not only Western religions, but Buddhism, I was, I was fascinated with Eastern philosophy and meditation yeah. kind of thing. And so I thought I knew a lot. And here I was in my early 30s. Now this started my teens and I'm in my early 30s. Yeah. I did. So, but I, it was the knowledge versus the application, right? I, right. I knew, I could tell you so much. I still could about right. these things, but there was no application. One day I was, I was, um, I was doing something. I knocked a trash can over. Okay. And I said out loud, Brad, you dumbass. And I stopped dead in my tracks. I had, and there were so, I had so many questions. I, I had never heard myself talk to myself like that. But I was like, I know that's not the first time I've done it. Yes. I just don't remember doing it before. And right. if I'm, and, and not only am I saying it out loud, if I'm saying it out loud, I'm probably saying a hundred times more often inside my brain. And what else am I saying to myself? And, and, right. That was a, 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 a pivotal moment for me in, in my life to, to that helped significantly increase my awareness. And I, what I discovered was, is that I was my own worst enemy. I was my own worst critic. I, I, I constantly, constantly was berating myself, constantly criticizing myself, constantly derailing my own plans and my, and my own, uh, my, my own dreams and aspirations. And I think you know, that's key. I mean, that's critical. So exactly yep. the third part of that we're talking about is that yep. um, you have to have awareness. Someone has to have awareness to come to us in the first place. Yes, exactly. But we can facilitate an awareness with them yes. that they would never reach on their own for having yep. going through it on, you know, already been down that path. Yes, exactly. You know, and clients will tell me things like that, you know, um, I knocked over the garbage can yesterday and I'm such an idiot. Yeah. Hmm. Where does that come from? You know, do you hear that? What I'll ask my clients is, do you hear that in someone in particular's voice? And sometimes they'll be able to say, yeah, that's something my dad would have said to me. But sometimes it's just like, no, I think it's just something I say to myself. Let's 
you know, take that out into the light and take a look at it. Um, do you, I don't know, when I was, when my son was a child, little, little, like four and five, he used to pick things up off the ground and stuff them in his pockets that he thought were cool, you know? So invariably I'd be doing the wash and out would come, you know, a tiny little pencil that's been sharpened now to this, or, you know, a cap off of something or rocks, you know? And I think all of us, whether you've gone through trauma or not, we all got rocks in our pockets. That's right. We all got things in our pockets that we've picked up over the course of time and never looked at again. And so, you know, when we're working with someone, it's like, take, take all that out. Let's look at it all. You know, what do you want to keep? What do you want to throw away? Yes. What do you want to yes. add to your pockets right. that you've never carried around before? Because we, I will, I will go with you. We can walk over there and go get it right now. Yep. And you can pick it up. Yep. It's, I know it's behind that fence, but I've got a yep. key to that gate over there and we can walk right around and you can go pick that up. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Because we know what that's like. That's right. You know? Michelle and I, um, when when we almost divorced 15 years ago, and, yeah. and and we decided together, I'm very, 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 very lucky because I had someone to do this with me. Yeah. And though we, we both discovered, I, I was lucky that, that she discovered that she had trauma also from her childhood mm -hmm. and that yeah. she hadn't dealt with and that she was not happy with, with her habits and her behaviors. And so we were able to talk about things that, that most married people will never talk about. And, and I know that, and I'm very blessed. I'm, I'm very, very blessed. I, I, know, I know that. Um, but we were able to talk through those things and together we talked about what we wanted our marriage to look like. And so that's exactly, that's the analogy I use, the, the pockets is the analogy I use. I tell everybody that we took all of our junk out and threw yes. it all on the table and we yes. talked about each and every piece and item and we decided what to throw out and what to keep yes and and that's exactly i mean that, that that's exactly what what people and i don't think people can 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 the people realize that i've heard so many people say this is our lot in life this is you yes. know what we were born into this is who we yeah. are this is and and who we are is nonsense neuroplasticity that they thought that maybe 40 years ago but science has proven you can be anyone you want to be from this point forward just by changing your neural patterns. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and I think there are people who will go from birth to death, never having realized they have anything in their pockets and perhaps not even realizing they have pockets. Yeah. You know, because yeah. that's scary. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it is an amazing testament to the desire and the commitment to change that you and Michelle were able to put that stuff on the table. A lot of, not a lot of people do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm aware enough to, to feel fortunate that, we're, that we did it that way. I look back and it's so scary of how many options we had, we both individually had at the time when you quantify those it's unquantifiable of the decisions we could have made. And we made that decision. And I'm thankful every day, every day. And that, that's why I enjoy doing what I, what I do so much to help people make that decision. Because yes. if I have someone that's like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. And I'm like, well, let, let's take a look at that. Exactly. And let's talk about the other options and take a look right. at those and make sure you have all the information so mm -hmm. you can make the best one, not just what you think is right for you right now. Let me right. offer you know, some perspective. Yeah. Yeah, because many of us feel so stripped away of options. Yes. You know, and we don't feel powerful. So maybe that would be an option for that person over there, but they're smarter than me or they're better than me or, you know, they have this, this, and this, and I don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's, um, do you think that's, that's a testament to with, with trauma survivors constantly living in the life of a reactionary state? Absolutely. And not having the ability to be proactive because yep. when they were younger, they had no control of their environment. Right. Right. I think so. I think for some survivors who don't do their work, they aren't aware that they have any kind of power whatsoever. 
for any kind of options other than to just like, you know, to just wait and for whatever life's going to do for them and go, okay, that's this, this is it. This is all I have. Um, yeah. And then, you know, it's about helping them to see that they, to empower them, that they know they have voice and choice, voice and choice. Um, you're familiar with the concept of learned helplessness? Yes. Okay. So we learned that when we're children. I learned that I had no power. You know, my mother, my father did an excellent job of training me, grooming me to believe I had no power. And then I grew up, but I still believed I didn't have any power. I still felt I was at the mercy of whatever wind or storm or you know, water flow came along. Yeah. You know, I couldn't change it. Um, you know, that simple task of empowering someone to see that they have voice and they have choice. Um, you know, that's a skill they're going to learn that they're going to take up and their world is suddenly going to open wide. That's right. Because now they can be proactive. Rather right. than just reactionary. That's right. Yeah. And Michelle and I talk about this all the time that we are now, uh, we live in a different state. We have completely different friends. We have, we, there's a lot of family that we don't interact in with. We have completely, everything we talked about and dreamed about 15 years ago is what we have and where we're at now. We have completely built our lives the way we envisioned. And, um, I can't stress how how empowering, how beautiful that is, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, we we and we did it just on on whims and aspirations 15 years ago, and and here we are. So yeah. Um, want to ask you real quick. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about when you said we were talking about your father, and the the abuse. Uh, was actually positive, uh, I, what I wouldn't yep. call it positive, but it was actually attention, it's actually love. Right. Yep. And I don't, I that way. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, human beings have a tendency to gravitate towards other people that, um, that they have similarities with, yes. things in common. Right. And for a great example would be an addict. If an addict lives, lives in a particular area, and they're an addict and they want to get clean and they say, I need to get out of here. And they move to a different city. Yeah. If they don't fix the fundamental issues that are causing the addiction, they will just right. find the same type of people where yep. they go. Yep. Because that's what we do. Yes. And none of us are immune. We're all the, all in every aspect in every conversation. Yes. But I don't know that, that people, uh, because abuse is so rarely talked about, you right. know, it's one of those, um, even as, a, as, as an abuse survivor, when I was younger and people start talking about their abuse, I thought, oh, God, here we go again. You, you know, and, and it's not necessarily because of a lack of compassion. It's because I got, I got so much going on. I don't have time to squeeze your stuff into what I'm doing. Right. And I think a lot of people fall into, still fall into that category. Yes. So it's important for people to understand that abuse survivors especially because in this conversation, you and I are both uh, sexual abuse survivors, that unfortunately, when we're abused, sexually abused as a child, there's a sense of normalcy about the abuse, about the the sexual deviancy. Right. Sex is is naturally programmed to to feel good, to be a positive part of our lives. Yep. We've adulterated it. Well, we didn't. Someone else adulterated it by mixing these the the love and, and right. the sex with the lies and the shame and the guilt and yep. all the things that go on top of it that creates a cocktail that as we as we get older we mm-hmm. seek out people who have that same type of of behavior patterns and i don't mm-hmm. want to say i don't want to say broken uh, no, i'm not, not broken yeah I, I mean i say we're all broken so if we're all broken we're all normal um, <laughs> but, but we we seek out our tribe or people that we have a connection with that have things in common. So if it dis, it causes our relationships to be dysfunctional. So we seek yes. out other people for dysfunctional relationships, which is yep. why my 
marriage ended up where it was 15 years ago. Yeah. And I think I just, if you want to talk about that a little bit more about with your father and why, I mean, you, you were getting attention. I was. And children need attention. Right. And I right? was getting affection, you know, and children need affection. That's right. You know? My mother was kind of the type, I'll tell you the, the story. This is classic. This is my mother classic. Um, I walked to kindergarten when I was a kid. It was like maybe six blocks away. Um, and one morning I was wearing tights. So I was five years old, wearing white tights and a dress and walking to school. And it must have been raining or had just rained. A car went by me and splashed um, dirty water all over me. And I got to school and my teacher said, oh my goodness, you know, let's go call your mom and have her bring you some dry clothes. So go into the office, call my mother. And my mother tells the teacher that she's not going to bring me dry clothes because the same thing might happen to her as she walked down to, to bring me dry clothes. Quit, that's my mother in a snapshot, right? <laughs> um, I need something. No, no, it, it's probably going to inconvenience me yeah. to give you that thing. So nope, not going to happen. Um, so I wasn't, it wasn't like I was getting emotionally fed anywhere else in yeah. the family. So, but, you know, I mean, I know this, this may sound very confusing to people, but if you take out the sexual component of the relationship with him, people would have thought it looked like a good, healthy relationship, yeah. you know, um, but it wasn't. Um, but what that did teach me, Brad, that taught me that sex is currency. That's what that taught me is that, um, I say this, but it's a sticky way to put it, but, um, I think inside my child mind, especially as I got older, I eventually realized that you're not supposed to have sex with your dad. Um, but. Can we stop there for a second? Because people who haven't gone through this, that probably just hit them upside the head and they didn't know where it was coming from. Yeah. Because they're like, what do you, what do you mean? But that it's an important component because your boundaries had been so disrupted. There were no boundaries that you thought this, this is just the way the world works. Right. Yeah. This is it. And you know, he did that with his grooming. You know, we're doing this because you're so special and I love you so much. And, you know, this is the way, you know, dads and daughters show love for one another. There was just that whole nasty conglomeration of normalizing it. Well, simultaneously, internally, somewhere back in the back of your mind that you couldn't pinpoint, someone was trying to scream silently, this is wrong. Yes. And it creates such conflict emotional conflict that people can't even grasp no no so i have a choice there's this voice in the back of my head saying yeah this isn't right but my lived experience is this is the only place i'm getting any love quote unquote so i'm going to choose to silence that voice and trauma survivors silence their intuition in alarming numbers because I can't make sense of both of them at the same time, right? It's that cognitive dissonance. And I can't do anything about it. Even if it's wrong, I can't do anything about it. Right. I'm so, stuck. Yeah. So it's much better just to shut that down. Um, yeah. And then when I realized probably maybe about eight years old that this wasn't um, what, you know, dads and daughters, all dads and daughters do. This isn't part of love. There was another part of me. Brad, that spoke up and said, it's a good trade. It's a good trade. I'm going to continue to have sex with my father in order to earn his attention and affection. It's a good trade, you know? And it wasn't a conscious decision. I sat down with my eight-year-old self and went, hmm, here's the options. What should we do? But in my- But you're eight. You're a child. Right. 
right. children, children do what they need to do. They make decisions to get, get what they need, get what they want. Right. And, yeah. So I decided at some point it was a worthwhile trade. Um, but then three years, about three years later, he completely rejected me. And now I feel so much shame because I thought I lived by the rules of the game, right? I did the trade and I continued in that behavior because I thought that if I did that, if I did A, I would get B. And then all of a sudden I was told, not only is A never gonna happen again, which was probably a good thing in my head, um, you broke the rules somehow in here. Now daddy and so doesn't now, love Yes, exactly. So now you don't get any love anymore. And not only did I not get any love anymore, but I got, you're a whore, you caused me to sin, you seduced me, um, you're never going to be good for anything other than being, you know, it was just this litany now of attack. So I not only lost the love of my life at that point in my life, I lost, you know, not only, I not, didn't, not just lost all of that, but now I get being told that I'm a horrible human being. And I don't think people who have not moved within the world of sexual abuse when you're a child understand the nuance of what that abuse means to them. You know, that for some of us, it worked, you know? I talk with survivors all the time who will say to me, you know, my father abused me, my father abused me. And, but they'll get to the courage to tell me, you know, sometimes I went and asked him if he would do it because I wanted that love. Or, um, you know, I learned how to do that with my siblings. And so sometimes, you know, I had an older, older sibling who was abusing me. Sometimes I went to my sibling and I asked, can we do this? Because that was the only way that they ever felt they could get any affection or attention or approval. You right. know? And the shame, holy moly, it takes a lot of work to try and convince someone who either feels like they actively participated or asked for, for them to understand that that was not their fault. That was a product of their grooming. Um, but this whole area of understanding, you know, I think a million people look at a nine-year-old little girl and go, you must have liked that, or you must have wanted that or you know something because otherwise surely you knew that wasn't well yeah but see this started when I was three three right I never had a period in my life where you know a conscious where I was consciously aware of you know where sex belonged and where it didn't and what who I was from the age I was three yeah. I was programmed and and like you said, and I had a child's mind, you know, people don't understand that this is something you endured when you were a child. You don't have, I, my prefrontal cortex is not completely formed at that point in my life. That's right. I can't reason and logic my way out of this. Which is, and it's not uh, completely developed until uh, our late teens, early twenties, yep, correct? Exactly. We're, we're a long way off from that. Yeah. Yeah. So I just. You know, I talk about these things, even though they're, they're hard things, because I just so much want people to understand, you know, how all of that came to be. And it didn't come to be because I was a bad child. It didn't come to be because I enjoyed having sex with my father. Right. It came to be because the stage was set in a million different ways 
for that outcome to play out. And then, like you said, then I'm going to grow up as an adult and I'm going to learn to gravitate towards people who also believe that sex is currency. And so I'm going to become promiscuous or involve myself in relationships that are not only dysfunctional as heck, but toxic. But what are they going to do? They're going to reinforce for me that I'm a bad person. I should be ashamed of myself. You know, you approach with that, hey, I have sex to offer. And they're like, fabulous, bring it on. You are amazing. I love you. And then, wow, you're really a whore. Yeah. And back you go through that cycle of shame. And okay. all you're trying to do is use that sex to buy even just a couple of hours of attention, affection. And you do, but then it ends up circling around shame and you're right back where you started yeah. going through the cycle again. Yeah. Um, and in, in my case, it's a, there's a lot more to it than this. I, you know, this is yeah. going to be a, an extreme oversimplification. And I know you know that, you know, I'm trying to tell the listeners, but um, in my case, because the abuse happened with, with people who were not in my family, Okay. It happened to people who had access to me at a young age. Yeah. Um, there was always that adrenaline rush. Yes. Right, because it's wrong. It's and and, and there there's that hormonal component to sex right. anyway from a human yep. capacity. But then you add the danger and the mystique, yeah. and then you add obviously the shame because you do know something's wrong. Right. And so. As I got older, seeking out sexual relationships for me, it was a thrill. The adrenaline rush is addictive. I don't think people understand, you know, our, our entire existence is driven by hormones and neurotransmitters. Yep. And the brain wants to follow those patterns. Yep. And so it was something would click and all of a sudden the, the, the hormones and the neurotransmitters, all the mm -hmm. chemicals would kick in. And I was like, oh, this is exciting. Yes. I've been here before. Yep. Let's do it again. Follow the pattern. Yep. It's over. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, I just cheated on my wife. I, I'm a horrible person. I've done this. I've done that. And then go back down to the bottom end of the cycle. Yep. Where everything where I feel like, excuse my language, I feel like shit. Right. And I go into this depressive state. Yep. I start to come out and I start to feel good again. Something triggers. The adrenaline yep. pops back up and I feel invincible this is hey i've been here before yep. and the cycle just continues over yep. and over and over and over and i don't i don't think people get no. they don't get that aspect even people no. even abuse survivors i think a lot of them don't understand the cycle the magnitude of the cycle that they're caught up in right right you know and i will i've worked with plenty of women who said to me something like but it felt good you know? Of course it does. And they feel it's so shameful <laughs> right, about it. Yeah. Um, but they, people need to understand that all of those situations come together and create this perfect storm. That's right. For this to happen and to be, you know, for us to, as you say, whip through the, you know, the cycle again and again and again. Um, you know, it's like we're on that roller coaster. Right. And we love it on some level and we go on it again and again and again. Knowing we're going to vomit when we get yep. off of it. Exactly. And yeah. deciding it's worth it. That's right. It's worth it. Right. And in a longer sense, again, oversimplification. In a greater sense, we could, we don't have time for that today, but we could expand this conversation into any type of addiction. Yep. This is how it all starts. Yep. And that the, the, the behavior you and I have both um, exhibited because of our abuse yeah. is, is the fundamental basic of, uh, basics of, of addiction in itself. Yes. And so when we look at people who are like, why don't they just stop? Why don't they quit doing what they're doing? Yeah. If it yeah. were that simple, we all, right. we all would. Right. Mm -hmm. If Yeah, truly. Yep. 
Definitely. So what um what do you think has been your biggest hurdle in your recovery personally? Mm -hmm. Um the belief that I am not worthy of anything good, um, that I am not good. Um, yeah. And underlying all of that, the shame. And I can't do this. Yep, I can't do this. I can't I'm not good get enough. back up. Right. I said, I say all the time that falling off the wagon isn't really the problem. It's not getting back on the wagon. Right. And to take that a step further, a lot of times getting back up on the wagon takes a lot of strength and energy. Yes, it does. And how many times are you like, I can't do this? I can't. Right. I can't. I can't. No. Yeah. That's right. one of those phrases that my head uses a lot is that simple phrase, I can't do this again. Yeah. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this again. Um, but we do. We do. You know, but, you know, like you said, people who look at someone who has an addiction and they are tut, 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 if you only you had greater willpower. I know, I know that those people are lost in that addiction because it helps them cope. Helps them Absolutely. cope with something, somehow, some way. And, you know, part of the the beginning point for all of us is learning that we're worth having a different life. We're worth it. Absolutely. But, but that's the underlying, if I had to, you know, people talk to me about, oh, you know, what was the hardest thing about your childhood? Yeah, the sexual abuse was rough, but I, that, doesn't, that doesn't haunt me anymore. That's not what haunts me. What haunts me is believing that I don't deserve to be loved. Great, great point, because <clears throat> survivors often look back on their abuse and think, it really wasn't bit, such a big deal. I shouldn't make a big deal about it, which was in my case, because I didn't realize all the underlying things I was dealing with were all because of what I had gone through. Yes, yes. There are so many manifestations of I'm not good enough you know, that you see all of the addictions, the workaholic, the person who has to be perfection oriented, people who are codependent. All of that is a manifestation of um, the combination of I'm in emotional pain and I'm not good enough. Yeah. You know, that's why again, and I know I keep going back to this, but I'm gonna go back to it again. If as a coach, I can build that relationship with my client so that they finally begin to understand that they are good enough and worthy of being loved, then once we have that down, it's like literally sometimes just starting to push a domino here and there and That's things right. just go woof, you know, and down they go. Um, you know, it's not as simple as that. But once my, one of my clients begins to understand that they are lovable and deserving of love, a lot of things start to be, you know, the, the sun starts to rise and show, you know, some of those things out there as manifestations of I'm not good enough. And now I can start to knock some of those down. Um, and then you get that lovely momentum um, and it's healing. Yeah, absolutely. That's I, I I absolutely I absolutely love being a coach. I'm so glad that uh, I've become part of your your organization. Uh, you know, I've been coaching for a long time, um, and it fits right into the holistic part of things. And I think uh, you know we haven't talked about any statistics here, but I think um, the statistics for for sexual child sexual abuse are alarming mm -hmm. uh, in and of themselves. But I think if we if we broaden the classification and we looked at, at the population though, as a whole, I think just about everyone has experienced some kind of trauma that negatively affects their behavior. Absolutely. And I would think a vast majority of that population doesn't even realize that right. 
what, what's causing them to do the things they're doing. Right. Um, which is what I love about integrating the trauma recovery coaching and with the holistic coaching because yep. everything all fits together. Yep. And no matter who you are and where you are, if you want something different, <clears throat> you want to, to, to be someone different, that, right. that's an oversimplification as well because just being who you are is enough. Yes. Um, but if you, you know, people have this desire to be, if you want to be something different, you want something differently, yeah. um, find a coach. Yep. Find a coach and, and someone you trust. doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be right. you. Um, you know, but find someone that you, that you trust and uh, start confiding in them and let them, let them help you walk through. I think yeah. people uh, underestimate what kind of a, a huge positive impact it can have on their lives. Yes. Yes. If you are at A and you want to get to B, you know, a coach may not be able to tell you exactly which way to go because coaching is client-led, but they can say, I've been to B. Yeah. So I got this map. Got a GPS. Yeah. And the analogy, I use analogy sometimes, if you were going to the Amazon Basin, spend three weeks there, right? Right. You didn't anything about it. And someone came up to you and said, hey, I've been there four times. Yes. Would you like me to go with you? Yeah. We, uh, you'd be a fool to tell them no. Right. And that's what coaching does. Yes. There exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if you had a book, an easy book for people who are just starting to identify the, with this and don't have a level of understanding or awareness, what would be one book that you would recommend to the listeners? Um, I would recommend that they took, take a look at um, Pete Walker's Complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I concur. Book. Um, it's not full of jargon, um, and he comes at it as he has that perspective of being there. Yeah. He comes from a place of having been there. He's been to the Amazonian jungle. Yeah. You know, a lot of these other books that are out there by people who are more well known, they haven't been there. Not that that necessarily makes their book less valuable, but if I have a choice of what book to give to a survivor, I'm going to give him Pete Walker. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I agree completely. Um, I, I've gotten a lot out of a, a lot of the books that you've recommended. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot, some of those, there's a lot you have to wade through to get what yes. you need out of it. And Pete yeah. Walker's book was, uh, was a page turner, just yeah. every page. Um, okay. I'm, gonna, I'm, going, I'm going, going to have to go back and read it again. Yes. Yeah. Reading, so. yeah. But, you know, if you want to start with something smaller and easier, I would point someone in the direction of Brene Brown. Okay. You know, she's got, you can start watching YouTube videos. I know some of her books are on Audible. You know, and she talks about shame. And, you know, if you have gone through childhood abuse or even adult abuse, domestic violence, you've got shame. Yeah. Miles and miles of shame. And if you can look at what she talks about, and she talks about the value of imperfection. So you can, you know, you can really begin to absorb and hold on to the fact that I don't have to be perfect to be valuable. Right. And that, and, and that stems, it's not only for abuse, uh, sexual abuse survivors or physical abuse survivors or, or people who have been neglected. This, this could be if you had braces from 11 to 13 yep. and, you, and, and you felt awkward or, or yep. something traumatic happened in school, yes. um, someone bullied you, you had, you, know, you had a bad relationship. There's so many different things that Small, they seem like small yep. things, but they can have such a major impact and influence yes. on our adult behavior. Yes. And this all fits into that category. Yep, it does. It does. You know, I think the amount of shame that, you know, accrues every day in the United States, you know, is crazy high. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Any, uh, anything we didn't cover and what last thing you want to, you want to say? Um, the only other thing that I want to say is, you know what, if you've been down this road and you want to help somebody else, um, you know, take a look at the program that we offer. I am blessed to have been told by many people that just going through the program is healing for them. I was one of them. Yeah. 
So I can't, I, when I came to you, I was, I had 15 years of, of recovery under my belt and I, I study deep and thoroughly. I'm, I'm a very, I, I'm a very critical thinker. I, I take a lot of information. In. Oh, I thought when I came to your program, all I was doing was getting a certification because mm-hmm. I'd already been there. Couldn't have been, the, it was the farthest thing from the truth. Again, going through the program helps me level up. I just, I just told a group of people that the other day. It helped, yeah. helped me level up. We're always, we're always growing. We're always leveling up. Yep. And it, it did that for me. And I've recommended the program to several of my friends. So yeah. uh, I concur. Good. International Good. Association of Trauma Recovery Coaches, yep. BobbyLParish.com. Yep. yep. Uh, and if you're in need of a trauma recovery coach, I'm going to shamelessly plug myself. There you go. Um, I will tell you my website's thebradleyhall.com. It's right here in front yeah. of you. Um, please reach out to me. I'd love to see what I can do to help. Okay. Always, always a pleasure, Bobby. Thank you. Always a pleasure here. Yeah. Thank you for joining me. And uh, I'm, I'd love to have you back again soon. Okay. I'll be here. All right. All right. Good talking to you. Take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks, Bobby. Bye. Hello? Is anyone here? Hello? Hello? Oh, oh, hi. There you are. I've been looking all over for you. I want to thank you for listening uh, today. I also want to tell you, if you haven't checked out my website lately, uh, you should do that. It's www.thebradleyhall.com. Just to remind you, I am a holistic life coach, a certified mindfulness instructor, and I am a trauma recovery coach. And in these uncertain times, sometimes we just need someone to talk to, to help us clear our thoughts, help us organize our thoughts, and help us map out a clear direction of where we want to go to help us navigate through the obstacles that we, we may encounter through daily life. And I'm here to do that for you. So check out my website. I've got plenty of free content uh, on my, my website, also on my YouTube channel, which is the Bradley Hall and uh, the Health Preacher. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. So thanks again for listening. We appreciate your support. And until then, take care of yourself.